out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, we're always playing the finest in indie pop. And we also love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of... Wayne Kramer, one-time member of the MC5, also the White Panther Party, and uh, has gone on to many other musical adventures, as well as life adventures. This is the interview, and this is the first part, well, the only part, really, because um, it's unedited. Uh, and after a bit of chat and casual getting to know each other, I began by that exciting question about those early musical influences. Because... It led on for me talking about Lemmy and David Bowie, who I always mention in every interview. They're all roughly the same age, and uh, both of them would always say Little Richard. And this was Wayne's response. Wayne, it's over to you. Um, I think it's very much the same. Uh, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, um, you know, mo- uh, and the, the original instrumental bands were were big like the ventures and uh Johnny and the Hurricanes <clears throat> and all those uh those bands that put out singles that ended up uh being referred to as garage rock yes and like that was and sort of frogmen <laughs> yes and did did the sort of the beat generation was that much of an influence for you back in in those early years not then, but a little bit later. Yeah, when I got to be 16, 17 years old, I started, uh, you know, I was exposed to jazz and and uh, the kind of beatnik culture. The lead singer in the MC5, uh, Rob Tyner, was actually a beatnik, and uh, he was friends with the other two beatniks in our town. <laughs> right, there was a small gang. It was a small yeah, it was a, it was a suburb south of the city of Detroit called Lincoln Park. Right. And there was two other guys, and I was kind of like, I brought the rock and roll to the beatnik uh, generation. Yes, and was that through people like Little Richard? Was that sort of a person that you... Because, I mean, both of those guys I mentioned, Bowie and Lemmy, both said, you know, it was seeing them. And also there was a DJ called John Peel, and he was just saying... You know, you just wouldn't believe what it would be like if you saw Little Richard. Yeah, yeah. The uh, to see him in uh, the film, the girl can't help it, uh, and then uh, to uh, to hear the records, and you know, kind of the records were kind of a portal into a whole nother universe. That you know, being a white kid growing up in Detroit, I did. It wasn't part of my experience and you know the sound uh of the the musicians and the um unvarnished you know unpolished untrained singing of little richard with its just raw emotion and and ebullience um was you know Compelling beyond anything else in my experience. Yes. At age ten. Absolutely. And when did when when did the sort of the Beatles sort of appear on your radar? Not so much later. 
um, I was already playing in bands. Uh, I was in high school and, you know, the British, when was the first wave? About uh, 64? That's right, yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I first saw the Beatles, I thought, oh, man, they're so old. Right, yes. guys. I know they were. Yeah, because I know I know with decades, they never sort of quite sit that comfortably. And I know there was a poem by a guy called Philip Larkin, who was from Hull, who wrote rather sure. sort of... And he, and he mentioned the 60s started in about 63, and, and it sort of went through to probably the early 70s. But, then, you know, in a very simplistic way, and obviously you were in Detroit, we get that idea that the 60s was very much, you know, everything was kind of beautiful until about 67, 68, and that was around the summer of love and then that post, you know, period. And, you, you know, in 67, there was the gathering of the tribes in San Francisco, and then in the UK, there was the four hour Technicolor Dream at the Ali Pali, and things seemed to be going well. What was it like for you at that sort of sort of the honeymoon phase? Well, you know, Detroit at that time was a boom city, and there was a lot of money changing hands. People had well-paying, union-protected jobs, and they were enjoying the promise. Uh, the American dream after World War II. You know, the GIs came home to uh, GI loans for school, GI loans to buy a home, uh, business loans. And uh, Detroit was just, you know, bursting with energy and competence and excitement. And for me, that filtered down to playing music in rock and roll bands. Yes. that there were places to play all over the city and parents could afford an electric guitar and a small amp for a kid. And uh, I went at it with all the enthusiasm that a teenager can bring, which is considerable. Yes, well, absolutely. There is those kind of amazing films from that sort of period. So, so we get a lot of, you know, from what was happening in, in New York with sort of, you know, sort of that, that world that was a little bit like the Velvet Underground and Andy Warhol, and then you had the San Francisco scene. So where were you kind of sitting sort of politically at that stage? Well, it started to become uh, clear to me that the, that the fear I felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the assassination of uh, JFK, the kind of rupture of that, that idyllic 50s mentality, um, that there was a much harsher reality setting in, <clears throat> and the contradictions uh, that I was able to um, grab hold of myself, you know, that America had these aspirational principles like equal justice, but you knew for a fact that people of color didn't enjoy equal justice. Um, black people and brown people in the city of Detroit did not participate in the success of the auto industry and the wealth that was uh, being um, generated, uh, neither business-wise, economically, socially, politically, they were still crossed out of American life. You knew that in the South, uh, people of color 
were disenfranchised. They couldn't even vote with the Jim Jim Crow laws. Yes. You just started, and then of course the 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 final straw is the war in Vietnam, which was the ultimate hypocrisy in the government saying one thing and doing another, <clears throat> and and uh, it all combined with. Uh, the pressure, uh, the uh, the pressure on urban communities of color in the uh, the rebellion of 1967 in Detroit, which radicalized me um, uh, profoundly uh, un- unto this day. <laughs> yes, well, absolutely. And what were your parents, and how were they were coping with this? Because obviously they were probably, like my parents, were, uh, you know, children in the sort of Second World War, which was a bit different because you'd been in America. But you you obviously, we we just got hammered in the UK, whereas, oh, yeah. you know, and, and sort of bankrupt. And then, uh, but the Americans, you know, obviously this was also what you were talking about with the economic growth. So were they kind of experiencing that kind of wave of change? Because obviously for their... You know, you look, you know, just two generations back, their parents must have had such a different life in the 1800s to what they were having when they were growing up and then into the 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it was, uh, you know, we are we put a lot of it down to LSD <laughs> that that, uh, you know, after taking acid, we had this cosmic consciousness that our parents didn't participate in. Um, I, you know, with the benefit of 50 years, I, I've come to conclude that um, we ended up not being so different from our parents after all. But um, at the time, um, the the division was uh, the, the generation gap, as they used to call it, uh, was massive. And uh, and, you know, I, I was raised by a single working mom and she just couldn't just couldn't uh, couldn't entertain the idea that you know I wouldn't join the army. <laughs> right, God, was she? So when you started playing guitar and sort of getting into the bands, did that slightly freak her out? No, she liked that. But she just wanted you to be in the army. She just wanted me to you know be a good citizen. And, <laughs> That's the last thing I was interested in. Yes. So when Tim Timothy Leary was saying tune in, turn on, drop out, and you had that world of Tom Wolfe and the electric Kool-Aid acid test and, and Ken Kesey and that gang and the Grateful Dead were appearing, were you sort of instantly drawn to the, to that kind of uh, the alternative side? Did that seem to be your the cho- the path that was kind of there for you? Yeah, that was that was going to be my tribe, the alternative. Uh, nation, you know, the, the, they called it hippies, and uh, and and I I ended up embracing um, the hippie aesthetic. You know, I thought love was better than hate, and and of course, uh, all young men were into casual sex, um, and uh, and and even you know a more strident political analysis started to emerge that, you know, there were reasons why um, the country was in an uproar, um, why the system seemed to be breaking down. And uh, at a certain point, I 
decided that I should help it break down. Yes. <laughs> to, and, you know, form the White Panther Party to do parallel but separate work from the Black Panther Party and to uh, stand against the kinds of hypocrisy that, that we just couldn't bear that was coming from Washington and from city government and from our parents. Yes. And when you sort of, obviously, when you're in the moment, it probably just feels like, like I spoke to a lot of people from the 60s, like people like Barry Miles, who's done a lot, and he was kind of quite a you know, person on the scene in London anyway with the counterculture. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the time, you know, when you look back, are you amazed of how much change and, and how much you managed to sort of pack in with sort of, a, being in the band, the White Panther Party, and all the characters that you started to meet, like, you know, John Sinclair and people like Abby Hoffman, and then you had sort of like, yes, like I said, the 67 Summer of Love, the Beatles, and all the usual cliches with Sergeant Pepper, and then quickly, you know, a few years later, you know, you had the riots, you had the Vietnam War, you had Woodstock, Altamont. Do you sort of think, oh, my God, that, you know, I mean, when you look back, and also you mentioned one of those things that sort of, people cringe or sort of feel a little bit embarrassed by the casual sex and that sort of all idea, the idea of slightly sort of open relationships, which were also, you know, weren't great for for probably the women of the the 60s were the ones who were part of that world. No, we, 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 there's no doubt that, you know, it was uh, uh, sexually exploitive. Um, although, you know, I, I never forced anyone to do anything they weren't willing to do. Um, there seemed to be a, a line that still existed there. You know, if a woman said no, then that meant no. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, we like, we like to say that the summer of love never made a stop in Detroit. <laughs> yes, it probably it, it it probably didn't sort of make much of a dent outside London, probably, or and certain key space places. So with you know, because because having sort of, I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and he sort he was saying about the early years of the band that they didn't go anywhere, you know, at all, and it took a while before they got the sound. What was it like with the MC Five? When did you sort of feel like you'd created something that was a little bit more special than just the norm rock band? Yeah, well. Um, we were, you know, the, the band, uh, had a couple of really smart guys in it. Um, I, I'm not saying I'm one of them, but certainly Rob Tyner and, and, uh, was, was, a just a magnificent artist, you know, creative on every possible level, um, original, uh, he was a visionary, and, um, uh, I, you know, we were fortunate that we had, we were the only band in Detroit that was pushing music beyond just covering songs that we could hear on the radio. I mean, to be a working band in those days in Detroit, you had to play what they called top 10, which was the top 10 hits that the radio was playing that week. And if you wanted to work in the clubs, you had to play those songs. But we didn't want to do that. We wanted to write our own songs and have our songs on the radio and play concerts like our heroes, the Rolling Stones and the Who and, and of course, the Beatles. Um, so uh, 
we had we had the great advantage of um, landing a, a plum engagement where we were the house band at the first ballroom type venue in Detroit. It was called the Grandy Ballroom, held about 3,000 kids on a good night. And it was just beautiful 1930s structure designed for the big band era of ballroom dancing. But now this rock band, the MC5, took over. So we could rehearse in the hall during the week, and then we would play there every weekend uh, opening for the touring bands that came through Detroit. And so it gave us a chance to really develop our ideas and our sound by having a steady gig in one place in town every weekend. Yes. And then we, of course, uh, had an, a relationship with John Sinclair, who exposed me to the free jazz movement. And from there, it all just exploded uh, into a universe of uh, creativity. Yes. Well, I, I sort of realized that looking back at the Beatles, obviously their first manager or their manager, Brian Epstein, he realized they had potential, but they needed to learn to, to play. So, you know, he sent them over to Hamburg and they just gigged all the time. And I think that play in live and in front of an audience is kind of the thing that kind of shapes a band because you know what's going to work and what's not going to work and how to respond and how to interact and how to deal with the occasional asshole in the audience and all that kind of stuff, don't you? So, you know, and also. Also, I always remember Iggy Pop talking about that sort of creating his sound with the Stooges. And he, and he mentioned the sound that was in the air of Detroit. Did that have an influence as well with your band? Um, it, it wasn't conscious. It was, it was uh, I think it's something in, in the water. <laughs> yes. It's just, it's the, it's the idea of um, the nobility of hard physical labor. The, the, the men and women that worked on the assembly line, those were, you know, just dehumanizing hard jobs. Um, you know, the repetition, uh, often in the, you're in a back-breaking position, you're trying to screw a part onto an automobile underneath, and you do it eight hours a day uh, and more if you can get the overtime because it pays time and a half. Yes. Uh, uh, th so the idea of uh, the honor in labor, that, that labor was the key to opening all the doors, uh, I think set us apart. You know, later on, years later, when I was trying to start a band with uh, Johnny Thunders, and I would say, well, look, it's six o'clock, Johnny, it's time to, to let's, let's go to work. And he'd say, no, man, I don't go to work. I go to play. And it could be a semantic difference, but I think it's a, it's a broader philosophical approach to, you know, honoring work and being proud of going to work and, and seeing, you know, uh, the, all the benefits uh, that come from working hard, from putting in the effort. Yes. Well, I, I sort of realised that doing this show for a long time, I often sort of end with saying, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? And actually, a lot say, you know, God, just to sort of work harder, actually, just to, you know, you, you're not going to get further if you're not going to put the hours in. And that, that kind of, and it's that Malcolm Gladwell, isn't it? His 100,000 hours. I think, um, yes, that's, that's a 10, slight... 10,000. 
10,000, that's right. Yeah. 100,000, that would be a lifetime. But yeah, so because with most bands, they have that, they have a five year narrative, which was quite bizarre that I didn't realize until, you know, they have the first album, things going well, the second album can be tricky. And for the UK, if anybody ever tours America, they come back and that's it, you know, the end is there, as Jim Morrison would say. So, I mean, you had a very similar sort of lifespan as well, didn't you? Did you, when you were doing the second album, did you feel things were sort of getting difficult to keep the gig on the road? impossible for us because we were we had lost our manager john sinclair was sentenced to nine and a half to ten years in state prison for possession of two marijuana cigarettes um and really nobody else could could we didn't respect anybody and so all the kind of manager professional manager you know pro rock type guys that came in we just we just alienated them all and uh, ended up, you know, we would be late for our engagements because we would have to go cop drugs before we left the city, which would make us get late getting on the road, which meant we got to the venue late. And, you know, so after a while we could, yeah, we couldn't work. People wouldn't hire us. Right. Yes. And can you, I mean, there was a couple of classic tracks. I mean, your second album has got a lot, but Sister Ray, Sister Ray, Sister Anne is one of those ones. Can you remember recording that? The oh, pro- sure. I mean, that's the sure. one that often gets, I mean, yeah. So how did, can you just kind of briefly tell me how that sort of came, came into fruition? Well, we, we were assembling material for the next album. You know, that was the third album. We were putting the music together. We were all writing furiously, individually, because we had decided at that point to credit individual writers. Uh, We just felt like it wasn't fair that the bass player and drummer didn't do any writing, but they got a full share of the writers. Um, it was kind of left over from our communist uh, yes. era, <laughs> our commie days. Uh, uh, but, you know, the, that that's a good formula for most bands, you know, just include everybody in on the writing or a share in the writing. Um, keeps, keeps all the soldiers happy. <clears throat> um, but... Um, we had already arranged the tune. Fred brought the tune in and he had a clear idea of what he wanted to do. And we had already had it worked up where we could play the song and we understood it. And we found ourselves in London and uh, Atlantic Records said, well, why don't you start recording now? And uh, so we went over to Lansdowne Studios and just worked on this one song all day. And, uh, and I thought we nailed it. I mean, we were all really, I was very proud of that, that session, you know, taking a, a cassette tape back to the hotel and listening to it and saying, yeah, man, we're, we're hitting there. We're hitting. Yes. And that's it. And that's the one that's often everybody, when you ever reformed, that's, that's one of the tracks that everyone wants to play on, isn't it? Yeah, and, and we we play it every night almost, and it always comes through. It always rocks. People people get it. Yes, they definitely get it. Because, because a lot of people, obviously you've had that amazing high, you've been to the moon virtually, then what happens next is often quite tricky. And for you, it's kind of, the 70s is messy, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, man, 70s were a terrible era for me. 
<laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I mean, you couldn't have, I mean, Hollywood would have thrown the script out, really, wouldn't it? We said the 70s. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the end of the band. The, by 72, the MC5 had, had uh, imploded completely, and we had no support in the business world. Uh, and, you know, internally, we were at each other's throats um, with, you know, great, recriminations and blame and just all that, you know, petty, uh, you know, and I'll tell you, it wasn't that we were necessarily being small about things, but the MC5 never made any money. I mean, we only had one period when Kick Out the Jams first came out where we made about $10,000 a week for like three weeks. That was the most money the band ever made. So, you know, everyone's hanging on by the skin of their teeth. And now people are getting married and they're having children and there's no money coming in. You know, if you look at a band like the Stones or the Who, they all had hits right out of the box. I mean, the first records they put out became hits. It's real easy to, to smooth over the rough times when there's money coming in. Yes, this but is true. We had no money coming in. And so, you know, you add that to the, the pressure from the FBI and the Detroit Police Department um, and from our comrades on the left. I mean, we got severely criticized by our own compatriots, you know, our own constituency um, that we weren't revolutionary enough for the revolution. <laughs> God. Yes. And how do you, I mean, if you, if you were to sort of be able to sort of navigate that differently now, what would you have wanted to have done to try to sort of stop it being such a car crash? Well, with them guys, I would have just, I would have just argued them down. <laughs> I, I would have pointed out the contradictions in their analysis. Yes. I, I, I didn't have it. And though I was a kid, you know, I, I hadn't read Marx or Lenin, and I, I didn't understand, you know, revolutionary theory and the history of the world. Uh, you know, I was a kid in a rock band. Yes. But then to add to that kind of bizarre period, because you got sort of busted on drugs and ended up going to prison. But then you met a jazz musician who'd played with Charlie Parker, Red sure Rodney. Did. So did that, would, did you feel that that was a turning point or was it kind of more than just one, one jazz player that was a turning point? Well, you know, I don't know that it was so much a turning point as a as an evolutionary point um, where, you know, I started to I came into prison as a relatively adventurous rock guitar player. Yes. And I came out of prison. Uh, I like to think a competent musician. So, you know, Red taught me how to read and, and uh, harmonize. Uh, and, you know, to get a grip on the, like the, uh, what the theory of, uh, of Western music is and, you know, how we go about doing what we do and why these things work and why other things don't work. And, <clears throat> yes. um, I'd like to think of it as just, you know, another step in the education of Wayne Kramer. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then, because that was the 70s, the 80s, which is a bit of a tricky period for a lot of people, especially those who have been sort of, I, I know with a few artists who'd sort of been around and thinking of people like David Bowie and even Iggy Pop, you know, they, they, they're kind of not sure whether to try and create something new or follow the trend, and mostly people follow the trend at that stage. So how did you find with the, the sort of going into the 80s with that sort of, I mean, just kind of briefly, because you team up with Johnny Thunders at this stage. Yeah, the 80s um, were, were not a productive decade for me. Um, I had relocated to New York City, and um, heroin came out of the faucets in those days. You, you could just go in the kitchen and turn on the kitchen faucet, and a bag of dope would fall out. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Yes, absolutely. But it was, it, heroin was uh, ubiquitous. It was cheap. It was high quality. And so I spent the, the 1980s wrapped uh, buried in a bottle of vodka looking for a bag of heroin. Nothing was read. Nothing was written. I mean, I put out a couple singles. I produced a couple bands. But, you know, that's not very productive for a 10-year period. No. Uh, no. Well, it wasn't until um, really till I got to... Uh, to Los Angeles that I really, you know, returned to work, went yes. back to work. So what was the bit in, in sort of that, that sort of moment that, that sort of turned things around, apart from moving to L.A.? Did, because often people move from L.A. because of the drugs, whereas you moved into L.A., which obviously might not have been about the drug. I've always remember David Bowie sort of going, he went from sort of L.A. to Berlin, which was kind of like jumping from one place to another with, with a lot of drug uh, culture. So how did you sort of navigate those, those kind of sometimes tricky waters? Well... The deaths of Rob Tyner and Fred Smith uh, impacted me, uh, you know, to to um, have to face finitude and the fact that, you know, we're not going to get the band back together and we're not going to go back and right all the wrongs and prove to the world that we're a great rock band because they were dead yes. and they were coming back. And then, uh, and so that that led me to the realization that my time is finite, and if I'm going to accomplish anything with the time I have left, I better get my ass to work. And so that meant going where my job skills were marketable. Um, and I spent the '80s in New York, and I didn't want to go back there. Housing was ridiculously expensive in in Manhattan, um, and so uh, and I had some resources in Los Angeles, so I came to L.A. Uh, I, you know, I had always wanted to do music for film and TV, and I figured that would be on the back burner. But if I come to L.A., maybe I could find someone that wants to make Wayne Kramer records, and I could you know put a new band together and get back on the road. And I did all those things. <clears throat> yes. Uh, and, interest yeah. and interestingly, I mean, because I've noticed that 30 years seems to be a bit of a pass in a time because a lot of things I liked in the 80s, you know, happened and you enjoy them and then sort of you move on a bit. But then sort of 25, 30 years later, people sort of go back and go, hey, wait a minute, this is amazing. Did you sort of feel that 
you suddenly became, you know, suddenly people started to value you and the work that you'd done earlier a bit more as, as the decades started or the years and decades started to pass by and, and people wanted to sort of work with you or produce you or, you know, sign you to record labels. Yeah. Yeah, as time went on, uh, it seemed like about every 10 years, the next generation would discover the music of the MC5. <clears throat> and when the Seattle bands emerged uh, and they all uh, were heavily influenced by the MC5 and were happy to talk about it, um, it, it kind of, uh, it was, it was uh, uh, comforting. <laughs> yes. To, to, you know, it's always nice to be recognized for your work. And, uh, you know, have my contemporaries uh, uh, credit the MC5 uh, with, uh, you know, the way their band sounds, uh, then, you know, I was, I was happy to see that. And, um, you know, we, I, I exploited that, too. I mean, I, I knew that was a possibility. And if I cultivated that a little bit, maybe I could, I could go back to work and, and have a career again yes because obviously when you were making that music back in those days i suppose you were so in the moment and incredibly young as well did you just think this is it for the moment that you know these are the songs that are going to be heard for this year possibly next year possibly a second year at the most i mean were you are you kind of surprised when you sort of hear the the, the music 50 years later thinking my god that is absolutely we nailed it back then there is that essence that energy within the sort of sound you know, I, I don't mean to sound um, uh, self-obsessed, although I am self-obsessed. <laughs> um, I certainly don't mean to sound um, uh, um, like a, a braggart. Uh, but we actually discussed and worked on music that we believed would have what we called historical significance. Um his, was this was this song idea historically valid? Because we didn't want to write songs that were um, fashionable. We wanted to write songs that had style. Style is eternal. Fashion is temporary. So everything we did, we tried to to run it through this filter of will this music last twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred years? Will it hold up? And it has. Yes. And did you sort of, because in the 90s, you, you released actually quite a lot of albums, didn't you, from Dangerous Madness to Citizen Wayne. And, and we're working with a lot of people, including, you know, David Woz and Peru Ubu. And then in 2000, you know, it seemed to be a significant decade because then you and Margaret sort of launched the record label and then you started working with Levi's and then you started sort of attracting even more guests in shows like, you know, the guy from Ian... Um, Asbury from the Cold, David Devanian from from uh, the Damned, and also the great Lemmy from Motorhead, and you you got had that amazing film at the Hundred Club, and started touring. Did you suddenly feel like, wow, I've just had a good shot of coffee, and I'm feeling absolutely buzzy now? It happens, yes. In the past couple of years, touring uh, uh, as MC Fifty, I, I would get it every night. I mean, it would just be really you know rewarding to know that you know people uh, 
uh, are, are appreciating these songs. And, and I had a band full of uh, just terrific musicians who all had their own relationship with the music of the MC5 bef- uh, separate from their friendship with me. Yes, absolutely. And did you sort of feel on a, on a sort of more of a, a medical front, you know, you look at yourself and people like Iggy Pop, Pop and Mick Jagger and you think, are you, are you sort of just an amazingly healthy dude? <laughs> I don't know. Luck, you know, I, whatever luck is probably has something to do with it. I mean, listen, I drugged and drank as much, uh, I think, as Fred Smith or Rob Tyner or Michael Davis. Maybe I, maybe I was being naive and I didn't really drink as much as them, but I did my share and... I mean, I did get sober 20 years ago. I haven't had a drink or an illegal drug since then um, and probably will not have a drink today. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I wish I could take credit for my 71, 72 this month. Yes. Uh, years, but uh, I can't really. It's just... The random factor of the universe. I mean, you you might find some people that would say the wrong MC5 guy died. <laughs> That's a bit cruel <laughs> in <Yeah>. this day. <laughs> but no, yes, but I, you know, sort of. But when you were so so sort of, I mean, just briefly, I mean, looking at that that sort of amazing sort of career. I mean, it, you know, the I was all, actually there were several things. I mean, Lemmy always said the one thing he hated was heroin because it was just killed so many of his friends. I mean. You must. Do you also have that sort of feeling as well of all the drugs? You know, like he loved speed, he loved LSD, but he said heroin was just was the thing that he absolutely loathed. Um, I think people that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. <laughs> I thought I suppose. not the drugs; it's the people. Right. Um, you know, it, it, listen, a, a, a substance abuse is a complex. Uh, chronic um, mental disorder and uh, there are no quick fixes there's no simple solutions to it and you know the causes and conditions that create um, addiction and alcoholism are equally as complex and uh, you know we're just scratching the surface on how it all works now yes but obviously, you've 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 managed to sort of battle that one, and sort of also, who was out of the people you know off the top of your head that you worked with, you know, you thought that was an amazing you know moment, you know, because these things don't last for long. I just wondered if there was a sort of a particular uh, artist you worked with, or a particular album you worked on, or a particular song where you just thought, God, the the planets lined up, and we just absolutely nailed that one. Well, in the, um, you know, I mean. Aside from my MC5 days in the original band, <clears throat> you know, I, I felt that way about Was Not Was. Um, the music we made together and the touring we did were, it was just, you know, everything I'd ever dreamed of, you know, being in a funk band that had danceable music and was experimental. Uh, and then, you know, today in the modernage in the last 20 years, I've had the opportunity to work with great uh, players, guys like Tom Morello, who I absolutely adore, 
and uh, you know Marshall Crenshaw is a fantastic guitar player, um, and probably another dozen musicians over the years, like Charles Moore. I made a great jazz record with him and uh, Phil Ranelin, um and Tigran Hamasian. I've just worked, I've been very fortunate to work with really wonderful players and uh, beautiful, creative people. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been I've been very fortunate. Do you feel, because just lastly, one person I've always adored was, luckily it was my first single and first album was David Bowie, and I noticed over his life he always worked with different people rather than having a, a band. I mean, did you sort of feel that we, we, as, as the years progressed that you started to feel more confident as an artist yourself, you know, and thinking, actually, I can do this. I'm not just a, a one-trick pony, I, I, you know, with, with, which made a great sound, but that was it. I am now this person. I can make this sort of music with that sort of group of people. I can make music with that sort of group of people and, and sort of suddenly felt more confident within yourself, with your craft and your art. Absolutely. I mean, it's been a learning process. You know, I mean, I've been doing this for 50 years. So if you look at it in any other career track, you you know, you got your four years of college, then you have your graduate school, postgraduate. And, you know, I'm I'm in the the master end of the spectrum now. I just uh, did a couple days recording doing a soundtrack for a film. Uh, and the musicians I had on the session were Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers, Stephen Perkins from uh, from um, Jane's Addiction, uh, Ben Montench from Tom Petty's band, right. and Daryl Jones, the uh, Rolling Stones bass player. And, you know, I was completely comfortable... Uh, being the leader on those sessions, I could I could instruct everyone on what I wanted for this particular cue. Um, they all understood me completely well. We had a very creative uh, two days of uh, recording the score for this film, um, and yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a process, but I, I'm I'm. I feel like I can wear a few hats these days. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just um, what would you say to an 18-year-old self starting out? If somebody, you know, if you could have whispered to yourself, you know, in those very early years, you know, just a couple of bullet points, what would you have just said, look, kid, just listen to this, one or two, like, you know, just a couple of little pointers, you know, even if they might not have wanted to hear, just thinking, you know, just you could save yourself some hassle, mate. Yeah, Um Get a law degree. That's a good one. Yeah. But uh, uh, write and record an album a year for five years. Keep the publishing. And at the end of five years, the gatekeepers will approach you with a Faustian deal. And you're going to have to make a decision then what you want to do. But you'll have those five albums and that'll be your annuity for the rest of your career. You'll have five albums worth of material you can license for commercial use, for promotional use, for film and television. Um, and you'll be in a position where after five albums of writing and recording, you know what you're doing to a large degree. Yes. And be able to, to negotiate successfully with... Um, 
the corporations that run the industry. Yes, because when you brought your book out, The Hard Stuff, two years ago, which seems like such a long time ago now, but it was only two years, did that feel like quite a cathartic process, just bringing, you know, being able to sort of, uh, yeah, emotionally sort of navigate and then sort of put that and process it, that's the word, isn't it? Process the stuff and put it down and and then let it go within a publication. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I did it was to learn about me. You know, uh, why why did I do the things I did, and how did I come to those decisions, uh, many of which were just stunningly unwise. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it was it was. Uh, it was a big, uh, big lesson for me to to write it, you know, and to put it all in the proper sequence. That was actually the hardest part. That and on occasion having my editor tell me that I glossed over something, and I better go back and dive into that and and figure out how I feel about that. Yes. Did you think, oh shit, he spotted yeah. or she spotted it? <laughs> yeah. that, fuck. All right, now okay, I'll get in there. Yes. You can't even pretend you were you can't remember. You think, oh shit, I, I that's the problem I can remember. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But it makes it, you know, I kind of can see, you know, the pro the, the, the yeah, I can see the benefits of doing it. And also it makes a great read. And also, you know, once it's gone, you kind of think, well, actually, I've let go. I mean, did that feel a little bit like that when you saw the the final copy? Well, you know, uh, I, I for fifty years I've been helping journalists tell my story, and I understand that journalism is a job, and people get paid by the word, and it, it, so I have a story, and if people want to write about it and they sell it to their magazine or their publication or their TV network or whatever. Um, that's a legitimate, um, sphere of activity, but I just felt like if they're all making money on my story and they're all getting it slightly wrong, um, then I should be able to make some money on my story and I want to get it right. So I, I viewed it as my one opportunity to set the record straight about what really happened from my, uh, uh, admittedly, um, individual perspective. I mean, my perspective is not anybody else's perspective, and my memories aren't anybody else's memories. But um, and I know that we all reinvent our memories and and rewrite them constantly. But I did the best I could to tell the truth, and I really wanted to tell the truth about fucking up and getting it wrong. You know, I've read so many, especially rock musician. Uh, memoirs, and they never messed it up. They never got it wrong. They always had the best ideas. It was the manager's fault, or the drummer's fault, or the bass player's fault. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to say, here's where I messed up. I I fucked up. 
<laughs> that is good to yes i i think well actually it's interesting because i realize having moments in life where if you're always blaming somebody else and not taking responsibility then you can't let go of the problem and then you repeat the problem it's almost like somebody says oh by the way here's the same a similar problem again but slightly you know with a different outfit on and so you don't learn and it's only by actually taking taking responsibility it also empowers one because you don't feel such a victim which is the worst thing as well yeah. and want people to feel sorry you think actually I'm not the victim I you know I made that choice it was yeah. a bad choice and next yeah. time somebody and when that's presented to me in a different way in a different day I'm not going to make it again because I've I've owned up you know I've taken my responsibility and you know it's painful and you feel a bit of a nerd but you know it means that you can move to the next lesson that one gets presented with and think, okay this is what life's about yeah I mean I I drank at Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler and Jack Holtzman for 30 years. I, I drugged at them. You know, I resented them so much for, for, for ruining my plan, for, for fucking up, you know, my vision of how things were supposed to go. Never once realizing that I signed those contracts. I wanted to be in business with them. So I had a part to play in that. See, that that was something that I only learned, you know, as time went on. Yes, and then you think that's cool. And now, you and Margaret, you're a solid team. We are, yeah, we're terrific. Cool. Look, Wayne, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. Look, and uh, thank you, and, and a huge thanks to Margaret as well for sorting this out. She's a star. She is. Keep me posted on developments. If there's anything I've said that was unclear or confusing, which is often the case, <laughs> uh, don't hesitate to give me a holler back. Yes. Well, look, I appreciate it. She said, I think, um, yes. Well, I, I appreciate it all. And take care and keep smiling. It's, um, it's only going to get better, hopefully. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> See you later, you. Wade. Take care. Bye-bye.